Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey folks, this is Ben, and this is, as you probably know, a small voice conversations with photographers, the podcast. So welcome along. Uh, I've got the fantastic Trish Morrissey as my guest this week, and I will, as usual, introduce Trish in a minute. Let's get a bit of housekeeping done. First of all, don't forget there is a members only version of this podcast, which you can sign up for, for the very reasonable sum of £5 a month. So that's like two cups of coffee a month to access the special bonus subscriber-only content that the uh, members enjoy. And that involves a fortnightly episode with a check-in from a previous guest, the bonus questions from the previous guest on the main podcast. Uh, So there's a whole bunch of additional content that you can access. Also, we do a thing called Photobook Focus once a month where we get a guest photographer to come and present to us over Zoom a book that they have either recently brought out or maybe are about to bring out and uh, they talk about that project uh, and you can come and uh, do that live and be there for the session or you can access that video after the fact on my website and that's all part of the perks of being a small voice member so if you would like to support the ongoing production of this podcast and at the same time get access to all that additional bonus content you can sign up at pod.fan pod.fan find the podcast on there and sign up for five quid a month or whatever that is in your currency uh please do that it would be marvelous to have more members um Speaking of that, for the members listening, uh, we do have Photobook Focus coming up uh, later this month, so you should have got the email notification, the newsletter about that. Hope you can join us. Bertrand Mernier is going to do a Photobook Focus uh, and present his very recent book, Erased, which uh, basically brings together 20, 25 years of work that he's shot in China. And uh, as you know, Bertie was a very recent guest on the podcast. So let me talk uh, first about uh, some of the sponsors because they are keeping this show on the road. And please have a listen. First of all, PickTime uh, are one of my sponsors. And if you haven't had a look at PickTime yet, please do and go and have a look because it's a really cool advanced online gallery platform, as you've probably heard me say for the last 10 weeks. And um, not only is it good for people who want to present images to clients, but if you're more of a sort of fine art photographer or a documentary photographer and you want a platform on which to show your work and maybe even to sell prints, then you might want to look at PickTime because there are different kind of elements to it uh, aimed at different types of photographer. And so it's not just for commercial photographers looking to present their images to clients in a really cool way. It's also for people who want to have their own online gallery and maybe sell prints. Try it yourself, completely free for 30 days. Uh, and you can sign up for a trial period, pick-time.com. So it's pick-time.com. Uh, and if you enter the code, a small voice, you can get an exclusive bonus month when upgrading to a paid plan. So yeah, have a look at pick time. 
If, by the way, you need a new website yourself, then do let me know and uh, I will always build you one with the Squarespace platform. Ben at bensmithphoto.com is the email address if you're interested in me doing that for you so you don't have to go through the time and hassle of figuring out how to do it yourself. Also, I'm going to be starting a video tutorial course very soon. Uh, I'll be launching that in the near future where you can um, sign up uh, to download a series of videos where I walk you through the process of building a website for yourself. So maybe that's more something you'd be interested in. Go to my website, bensmithphoto.com and have a look under the Squarespace pages uh, at that. It's not actually up yet, but um, there's a sort of preview. So yeah, that's all going to be happening. Let me also say that this episode of the podcast is supported by MPB, the largest global platform on which to buy, sell and trade your used photo and video kit. MPB is not a marketplace in itself. They buy directly from sellers and evaluate all items before reselling approved kit with a dynamic pricing engine providing the right price up front based on make model condition and market across a huge selection of camera bodies lenses and accessories every item is inspected carefully by product specialists and comes with a six-month warranty giving customers peace of mind that buying used doesn't mean sacrificing reliability the mpb business model is a hundred percent circular they promote sustainability diversity and inclusion in everything they do all packaging is hundred percent plastic free and their cloud-based platform uses a 100% renewable electricity with first-class customer service their users can receive support through the help center or by speaking with an expert over the phone or via live chat at mpb there's equipment for everyone who wants to try something new hone their skills or pursue their passion and it won't cost the earth visit mpb.com the simple safe and circular way to trade upgrade and get paid for your kit So my guest this week is Trish Morrissey. It was great to chat with Trish. I really enjoyed it. She's really interesting. You will uh, discover that for yourself when you listen. Much of the work of Dublin-born Irish photographer Trish Morrissey is a study of the language of photography through still and moving images, using performance and wit as tools to investigate the boundaries of photographic meaning. Although most of Trish's work features her as the protagonist, she does not consider the photographs to be self-portraits per se, though they can be read that way. She uses humour as a tool to disarm the viewer, hoping it will then evaporate, leaving a slow-burning, psychologically tense afterglow. Weaving fact and fiction, Trish plunges into the heart of such issues as family experiences and national identities, feminine and masculine roles, and relationships between strangers. Her work has been exhibited widely, including in the show's landscape portrait now and then at the Hestercombe Gallery in 2021, Who's Looking at the Family Now at the London Art Fair in 2019, and in the solo show Trish Morrissey, A Certain Slant of Light at the Francesca Maffeo Gallery in 2018. And most recently, in 2022, her exhibition Trish Morrissey Auto Fictions, 20 Years of Photography and Film, was at the Serlatius Museum Gustaf in Finland. Her work is in the permanent collection of the Museum of Fine Art in Houston, the Victorian Albert Museum in London, the National Media Museum in Bradford and the Wilson Centre for Photography in London and was published in 2022 in the book Autofictions to coincide with the aforementioned exhibition in Finland. So one more sponsor read before Trish. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Capture One Pro, the professional photo editing software for every photographer that allows you to shoot, edit and collaborate wherever you find yourself from the most controlled studio environment to the unpredictability of the open road. 
Capture One's powerful, easy-to-use set of tools feature true-to-life colors and superb image quality, lightning-fast tethered shooting, speedy and smart shortcuts, and an on-the-go workflow for both desktop and iPad. And Capture One Live makes remote collaboration, both for getting feedback in real-time and post-shoot, faster and easier. Free-to-use, collaborators can access images and leave feedback from any device. Whatever stage you're at in your photographic trajectory, in 2023, you can tell your best stories yet and bring your vision to life with Capture One Pro. Try it out yourself by signing up for a free 30-day trial and get an exclusive 20% discount on your first year subscription by going to captureone.co slash voice 23 capital A, capital S, capital V, and 23 in digits. That is Capture One Pro. So I hope you enjoy this. I certainly did. Lovely to chat with Trish. Here is Trish Morrissey. Nice to have you join me. I I was thinking it's kind of an appropriate time because, you know, you had this big uh, show and and a book out last year. This is kind of um, one of those... um, career retrospectives I suppose you'd call it or survey or something those kind of um, big kind of retrospective things seem you know like okay it's 20 years but at the same time it's kind of a bit random but what was that experience like what is it actually a useful opportunity to reflect and look back on what you've done and and in, in a weird way I suppose maybe sort of make some plans for for the future yeah all of those things <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what was fantastic about the experience was seeing the threads through the work, which you don't really necessarily connect with, um, except for when it's in one space, even though it was a massive space. I mean, it was a whole a whole building. Seeing that actually it is just, even though the projects are kind of discrete and individual, there is a kind of theme running through everything which i mean apart from it being me <laughs> yeah um there, there's this sort of consistent exploration of female experience which i wasn't i mean i kind of was aware of but it really sort of brought it home mm. seeing the work in this way yeah that's the thing isn't it i guess it's kind of funny because you you know it's your work so you would you think you'd be very much aware of the themes that you're exploring, but maybe not so much. Maybe it does take something like that to actually be, you know, be, be suddenly become aware of those things that perhaps you're less aware of them than we might think you are. Yeah, I mean, I think there's obviously an no, enormous amount of self-reflection in my, you know, just the way I work is very much about um, a sort of combination of my biography and other other people's experience and working looking at their experience through how I might have experienced similar things. So there is always that thread going through. Um, but I haven't before sort of looked at 20, you know, looking back at, say, for example, you know, a picture from 2003 when I did the first series that um, was featured in the exhibition called Seven Years, um, the one titled July 22nd, 1972, which is the one that's been quite, public um it was in charlotte cotton's photograph is contemporary art it's been on the cover of i don't know how many books it's in the um george jeff and um, what's his name <laughs> uh badger the, the jerry badger jerry badger thank you thank you sorry jerry <laughs> i don't want to call him jeffrey jerry badger's book um on british documentary photography yeah since 1940 so it's it's that that picture i didn't realize how similar it was to one that i took um in fact two that i took one in 2017 of um 
uh, in a project I did at Hesticum, and then another one that I made in um, 2015 uh, while I was on residency in Finland. And they're they're so similar, not in the content, but in the in the construction and the location and those kind of things. So it's I hadn't re really, wasn't really aware of that until mm. we put them all up together. Yeah, I was thinking about that project seven years. It's almost like a lot of the themes um, were there right from the beginning in a way. You know, it's it about, um, I guess, the exploration of of the kind of conventions of photography and the language of photography. But also, like you say, I guess the, the thing about the female experiences in there and um, and also this thing of you putting yourself in in the images, you know, is there too. So it was all kind of established quite early on, those kind of those kind of things that you have worked with ever since in a way. Well, this was, yeah, seven years was the first time I did this and it was not planned that way at all. I was doing a, I wanted to do a fake family album, but with all my siblings and there's five of us. Mm. <laughs> so I wanted to sort of recreate family photographs with us playing ourselves at different ages and, you know, playing each other. And it just became a big old mess. Um, and not all of my siblings were comfortable in front of the camera. They were so self-conscious and had ideas of their own. Um, and I took this mess. I just finished, um, it was 2001, I think. Yeah, I just um, graduated from my MA at LCC and um, went to PhotoFest in Houston. And uh, I um, showed, and I had a review with Andy Grundberg, um, and it was actually his idea. Mm. All <laughs> he right. said, oh, yeah, forget all these. Look, you here and your sister, you're great. Just do it, you and her. Just you and her. Play all the parts. I thought it was literally like, you know, light bulb moment. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we did. And, you know, my older sister, Anne, is incredibly generous with her time. I don't know how she did it with work and everything, but she... You know, I'd come home because I, I was living in London at the time. I'd come back to Dublin, um, you know, with sort of maybe four pictures in mind to do over a two-week period um, or a week, depending on how much time we had. And, um, you know, she'd always managed to sort of get a half day, three or four half days <laughs> in that time and come and do these pictures. Not always happily. She did it quite – she was quite irritated by the process, but kind of did it out of filial uh, or sisterly um, duty. <laughs> mm. And then she was quite embarrassed by the results and was dread. She's a university lecturer, an engineer, in fact. So she was quite dreading her sort of, you know, 19-year-old students, particularly the boys, finding out about it and uh, taking the mickey. But luckily right. that I said, well, Anne, you know, they might think you're cool. <laughs> yes. So luckily those worlds, I don't think have ever clashed. I don't think they've had ever seen those right. pictures. And right. anyway, I think she might be a bit proud of them now, considering how they've, you know, been received. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's how it started, really. And I, I had no intention of carrying on being in the picture, as it were. Um, I mean, the, ne the next series directly from that was the series Front, which is the um, series of photographs where I'm uh, photographed with families on the beach. And that was kind of just taking, you know, the sort of the, the, the family photog photograph, the sort of classic of the, the beach day out, um, and using that as a kind of a metaphor for the idea of the borders and the boundaries and the edges of things and families included. Um, and that was, that, that had to have me in the picture because the whole point of it was this idea of, you know, infiltrating a family and um, crossing that invisible boundary. Yeah. 
Um, and then, of course, the woman who I replaced became the photographer. So it was about crossing of, um, uh, what's the word, transferring of roles, in, you know, as well. Um, and there's all, I mean, there's all sorts of other stuff in there, but mm. that had to be me. And then after that, it kind of, it just became like the habit of like everything I thought of was a, was a, was a sort of self-reflection. And it kind of, looking back, even front became something like, trying on something so I was trying on motherhood in a way because it was before I had any children while I was trying to become pregnant in fact and in fact when I started the project I didn't realize I was actually newly pregnant so that whole two-year project um spanned the sort of pregnancy birth and post pregnancy Mm. body so I kind of went from I lost I gained and lost three stone in that whole period so I think that was one of the things that helped me um become a a sort of invisible mm. my you know me myself I felt quite invisible actually but I didn't you know I, I could I was more of a chameleon because I was changing shape so much anyway myself going from like you know the sort of the, the maiden body if you like mm. you know the sort of uh un, unpregnant body to right right through to being enormous and then you know getting back to being a bit less enormous mm. um and then after that, everything I've done, when I've looked back on it, I've realized is actually trying things on. It's kind of like a way of rehearsing for the future, which is something I've only realized, again, putting this whole project together. Um, right. Way. Well, I kind of, I had an inkling before, but it really became quite clear. Mm, interesting. Yeah. It's funny you talk about that um, thing of you being pregnant and and that's just one of those, a great example of one of those um little kind of ad- additional kind of uh, layer <laughs> that you couldn't possibly have um, planned for or, 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 you know, deliberately done. It was just, it just kind of, the kind of, the, the kind of gods um, were sort of, I suppose the artistic, the muse maybe was sort of uh, throwing you something in extra there. Uh, well, I think I was, I was, I think it actually, they, they came hand in hand because I was, this idea came and I was drawn to working like this probably because motherhood was on my mind Right, of course. So it kind of, I think it was symbiotic, really, mm. rather than chance. I think right. one thing drew, one, you know, it, it drew me to it, if you, if you like. It was a sort of a way of expressing that, you know, rehearsal for motherhood. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's great that you've you've introduced a couple of, of projects that I did want to talk more about. So I, I want to sort of go come back to them, maybe, because I did want to talk more about both Seven Years and Front to some extent. Um, and of course, well, you, we've kind of introduced all, all of the other things that I kind of want to want to talk more about. But this, this thing about being in the picture, like, yeah, there seems to be a kind of combination of very pragmatic reasons for it, but also then some sort of artistic reasons at the same time. One is that I guess it's easier <laughs> to just be in. You know, you don't have to rely on anyone else if you're if you're the the, the protagonist of the picture or if you're the subject of the picture. Uh, certainly not for the actual taking of the picture, but I do rely on other people for the setup <laughs> right, <laughs> quite a right. lot. Okay. I often have to have some, I mean, not always. I can work with just me, um, but I do often have somebody else performing the, the role just so that I can see what it looks like a little bit. Sometimes, not always. I mean, I'm thinking of some that I've done that and some that I haven't. Um, yeah, yeah. And when I was working on 4 by 5 film, I needed a, a camera operator. Um, but now that I'm working digitally, I don't because I have a little thing called an intervalometer or an intervalometer mm. <laughs> that I can just set to take a picture every few seconds. 
so I can just set it up and then carry on. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are the pragmatic thing, but then it's w- without planning it this way, it has become. Um, I mean, there's the, partly it, it's also to do with not ever wanting to exploit anyone. I mean, the the front series, you might think that was very exploitative, but it was very collaborative. And, you know, I've been in touch with the families, um, not so much recently, but one family in particular, actually, are I'm very much in touch with and who have, you know, are still, um, we've actually done a repeat of the picture when, you know, the children were, well, the child in the picture was, you know, 10 years later, and then there was two more children. <laughs> right, um, right. So we 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 have re, you know reprised it, and we might even do it again in twenty twenty six. But um, if we still have the appetite for it, so mm. you know, it, it, while it appears to be a bit exploitative, and it is quite uncomfortable. In fact, it's very uncomfortable. One of the um, the the women who 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 I replaced when she saw the picture, you know, said, "Oh my God, it's as if I've died," and you, you know, and like, mm, or divorced. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. But you know. Uh, so they they part of the deal. Well, no, not part of the deal. One of my offers was that I would do a lovely portrait of the family as they were on the beach without me in it. So every, all they all got a ten by twelve. Right. Although okay. for the groups of friends, I'm not sure how that picture was split up. I imagine the person who <laughs> took the picture got mm. the picture because that was my my point of contact. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm rambling on now, and I forgot. No, you're point, not. Your question. No, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, this is very much the um, the order of the day, so it's uh, you're you're completely on point. But um, I'll try. I mean, I've got so many kind of things that I'd I'd like to sort of bring in, but I'm trying to kind of stay on on track myself. Um, well, we should sort of explain for people who haven't seen that project that basically you 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 photograph families on the beach, um, and you, as you say, um, sort of replaced um generally speaking the female um of the family with yourself and then got them to to, to actually take the picture um and and then yeah. just also the titles are all the wi- the name of the women who took the photo fo- who became the photographer right that. exactly Very and i i mean well, i guess one of the things we never see is we never see the rejections and, and the failures by definition of course because you, you've seen the, the people who've said yes but like well, did people generally understand your your intentions, or you know, they get it, or did you have some very sort of funny looks and and uh, you know, some sort of uh, well, a lot of rejection, I suppose. Uh, yeah, and initially, yes, until I sort of got the gist of and you know the sort of psychological element of who was going to say yes. It did take a little bit of trial and error. So you had to be a bit of a kind of you had to be a bit of a psychologist in figuring these things out in a way. Yeah, I mean, never. Families that were sort of sitting up, looking around, chatting, reading were good. I didn't, you know, not asking anybody if, if, if even one member of the group was lying down, that was a sort of vulnerable position. So mm. that was not a good time to ask. Um, I also learned very quickly that if I didn't already look like part of the tribe, I would be rejected. So I, you know, scout the beach before I approached anyone and decided who I was going to ask. And I had a a, a backpack full of clothes so I would dress right. according to the family you know obviously within reason but that yeah. obviously would look s- silly as well and I wouldn't sort of be chameleon like if I was dressed in just what I was wearing I mean I did I did do that one time and that's when I realized that it was the wrong thing I I was wearing sort of <laughs> I suppose what you might call quite London clothes and um I was in a small beach in Wales and um 
that I was I was looked up and down like an alien and I realized I looked like a right twat. So <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. when I realized that um you know I had to already feel look like I was part of yeah. the group. Yeah, to f- and find- also then uh, sorry, just the other no. big thing that I learned as well and so basically initially I had some rejection and then I had no rejection after that because um I only asked people who I knew would say yes. And the other big uh, psychological sort of um, element to it was who I addressed when I spoke to the family group. I, in my sort of walkabout, I had to sort of um, recognize who the alpha was in the group and address my inquiries to them. Because mm-hmm. if I didn't do that, I was rejected by the alpha who was insulted by my non-addressing of the group you know leader interesting so yeah so it was it was it was uh you know there's a huge psychological element yeah an anthropological one as well sorry did you say anthropological yeah yeah i guess yes i mean it it was quite primate like in a in a way a troop a tribe Mm. a group i mean the domestic taken outdoors is the family is the group is the beach family experience in Mm of the UK, Ireland and Australia. Some of the work was done in Australia, although I didn't use many of those. Only used one actually in the end, the final lineup. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested in how did that idea come to you? Because I, I, I'm kind of interested in, in the way that, that, you know, you develop ideas, generally speaking. But what was the, the, the kind of kernel of that idea? And you, you were, I guess, trying to explore again we're back to the sort of conventions of of photography or in in this case the kind of tropes of of family photography particularly um which of course you'd already explored in seven years but how did that idea come to you initially for front i don't really know i mean i had i don't i honestly don't really know i mean i think it was just looking at family photographs and then of of, you know beach family photographs Mm. um and then wanting to 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 make pictures about families, and I, I actually, I really genuinely don't know where the idea actually yeah. came from. Fair enough. Um, yeah, you know, light bulb moment. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't. I can't. Well, no, because it, yeah. it's such a it's such a, a very it's such a specific and you know particular idea. It's very it's very simple in its own way, but it, you know it has so well, many. One thing actually, just when I think about it, may have sparked the idea is a friend of mine had done a project where she photographed herself, although I've never seen the photograph she described to me one day. Um, she's an only child and she photographed herself randomly um, with fa- with families that she would find in parks and stuff. But I think it was done in a very sort of, uh, you know, quick way. Not, mm. But, but I, I never saw those photographs, so it was a description. Um, and that may have sparked, this, planted the seed of me with other families, but I couldn't say for sure. Sure. That which came first, the, whether I was talking about that idea, and then she said, "Oh yeah, I did that." I can't remember, mm. but I know that happened around that time. So yeah, perhaps, I don't know. And with, with seven years, like um, you're very meticulous in your recreation of the sort of um, historical, you know, look of things and the, and the clothes and all and all that stuff. Um, do you, but did you ha- like you talk about your own sort of family albums? Did you have a lot of of those? I mean, were you kind of photographed quite extensively when you were? you were kids you and your siblings or not no not at all we had one roll of film that was uh put in the camera at the end of the holiday we had one roll of film a year which was started in the summer holiday um and usually finished around christmas or at christmas or it was the beginning of the next holiday and then 
the film, you know, went around. So yeah, it was one roll of film per year. Right, right. Uh, so no, definitely not extensively photographed at all. Um, but my family album as such, my parents' family album, was actually a cake box into which everything was randomly put mm. from beautiful photographs of my grandparents' wedding, you know, Edwardian wedding, to, you know, recent pictures of my nieces and nephews. So the And they were all just in this box. And depending on who'd been in the box and sifted through would depend on what was sitting on top. You know, I mean, it was really, and things were getting damaged. Mm. And one of the things that started off this interest was um, the realization that my parents were getting old and the knowledge of most of this box would be gone with their deaths, (laughs) their Mm -hmm. demise or the loss of their marbles. Um, So I just thought I'd try and put some order on this box. Um, So I sort of put everything, looking at the photographs, from the sort of particularly from the 30s 40s 50s of theirs before we were you know I was born in the late 60s um of people that I didn't know like re- distant relatives or friends of theirs um so I put them into envelopes looking at the, the clothes sort of into decades and asked then sat them down in an afternoon and asked them who was in the photographs and the, most of the time they agreed but a lot of the time they would disagree about where it was or who was in it and then we'd come mm. to a consensus and then I'd write on the back. And I was really aware that me writing on the back would then become the fact of the picture, if you know what I mean. People wouldn't question that this wasn't the truth. So I just became interested in the slippery notion of photographic fact, and particularly when it relates to families and how, um, you know, the family album is itself a sort of uh, propaganda tool to show what a functional, happy, wonderfully amazing wonderful amazing family you are you have or you are a part of but in Mm. fact it's curated um and you know belies the truth often so that so therefore the idea of a fake family album kind of you know grew from that right right yeah and um i guess i guess that scarcity of the i mean even like you're saying one roll a year or whatever but then i guess again you know at least those those pictures would end up printed and i suppose that that, you know you're gonna yeah even though there's not many of them they're, they're more visible i'm thinking about um the way in which that that is going to disappear in a way now we're in the digital world and everything oh, it's gone yeah it's everything gone. what do you think uh the implications of that are for the sort of collective memories of 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 you know sort of our kids generation and that i'm just wondering if you've got any thoughts about that well this you i mean the fam, snaps are ubiquitous now i mean you you know the 70s 80s you paused and you posed, you know, up until then, you paused and you posed for a snap. You know, you, you, you really sort of took it seriously, whereas now everything's on the fly and it's not, you know, and with silly emojis and gestures and it's it's totally different thing. It's, mm. it's on steroids. I don't know if they'll have so much in, interest in, in any of it as, 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 you know, our generation would have done because, we, as you say, we kind of grew up with it, with our own, maybe even our own parents' pictures from, you know, from their when they were young and then our own but then like you say now they're just so used to like a million pictures a day being generated that they just don't seem to i don't suppose they've got any significance in the way that they might have for for us well i don't know i mean i you know i do occasional uh assistant you know associate lecture roles and uh, you know that there is a lot of nostalgia for the period I, I would think period the people are nostalgic for when they were born the period when they were born <laughs> so you know when I, I have I have had a, a big break from teaching but I'm just back doing a bit now um 
But when I was teaching in the sort of mid 2000s, um, people were, you know, the students were looking back to the sort of 80s and 90s and they were, you know, into VHS and they were into, starting to get into vinyl. And, you know, it, I don't know. I think, I'm not sure. I don't think you can sort of generalize or categorize. I think it's different. Mm. I think it's different, but not necessarily worse. No, no, exactly. I think you'd have to be a bit of a sort of, uh, you know, you'd have to be pretty good at at, at looking into the crystal ball to actually come to any sort of concrete conclusions, really, about how things are going to pan out um, in any way. I I really liked, um, there was this this thing that you'd sort of said that, um, let me see if I can just read it, Um, telling moments in which the unconscious leaks out from behind the facade of the face and into minute gestures of the body. Um, was, that was in reference to th- these, this kind of fake family album that you created yeah. for, for, for seven years. But is, do you feel that you can, you know, that we can derive more insight from into, into a person in the picture from their body language, essentially, than from well, that's what's what going I was on lo- their face? Exactly. That's what I was looking at. So the idea that... Um, they, my idea with these photographs was that they were the ones that wouldn't make the album. They were the ones with the fingers in the lens, the eyes closed, right? Um, you know, the blur, the whatever. The, the, so they were the sort of the ones that would be down the back of the sofa. But um, yeah, so I again, I mean, I'm very much aware that this isn't what vernacular photography looks like now. But certainly, you know, when I, thinking of the albums of the 70s and 80s or even earlier, that it was, um, you know, the 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 sort of you look you'd look back at photographs and go oh yeah uncle tom never stood next to auntie Joni because da, mm. da, da, now we know why and look you can see the way they're standing so uncomfortably together blah, blah, blah. you know this kind of uh small gestures yes definitely mm-hmm. leak out from the fa- from the from the from the mask i think mm-hmm. you can pull you know you can smile or whatever but there's always a little something going on in when the body you- language when you find yourself photographing someone else, are you? Is that something you're also consciously aware of there and then, like when you're actually in the process of taking a picture of someone, or is that too like you're, you're too busy just you know doing no, the practical I mean, stuff? Yeah, too busy doing the practical stuff. I mean, the, it's a quite a rare occasion that I'm asked to photograph somebody else. To be honest, but um, well, true. Yeah, I, you, you know, <laughs> generally photographing yourself, it is true to say. Um, but I was thinking but even if, about your own kids. You know, when you photograph, if you've ever photographed them. Yeah, well, I'm doing a project with my daughter at the moment, um, who called, which we started when she was 11, um, and she's now 17, uh, called The Maiden and the Crone, her mm-hmm. being the maiden and me being the crone. Being an older mother, she sort of hit adolescence the same time I hit midlife um, and all the sort of raging hormones that go with both. <laughs> mm, interesting. <laughs> so it's a kind of a self-deprecating, uh, you know, a sort of jokey title, but we we pose probably it's, it's done on the fly and very. So this is I'm just thinking when you're asking about photographing other people, even though I'm photographing myself, my daughter's there too, um, and we've kind of generated these kind of system of poses that we just seem to fall into. It's either it's quite it's quite fascinating actually how how we do it, and it also depends a lot on the mood we're in when we do it, and I do it. We try and do it very quickly and very much on the fly rather than, you mm. know, so they're not exactly, they're a little bit higgledy-piggledy. I'm not, we're not always in the same part of the the picture. You know, we're not always, it's not like, you know, meticulously. I'm thinking of Zed, is it Zed Nelson who did that mm-hmm. photograph of family? 
yeah. every year for like 30 years or something and they're you know he must have measured they're just like absolutely in exactly the same place every time yeah. Yeah. we're not like that at all it's right. it's very much loose um very loose so looking at the pictures afterwards and especially looking back now at the ones from 2017 when she was 11 um you can yeah there are there yes for sure there is there is mm. a, a leaking out so so what tell me about that that project a little bit then what's what's the sort of um you know the main idea behind it you, you're sort of obviously you're both going to be in the in the pictures and i guess you're yeah i mean it's 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 documenting a period of time obviously um very significant period of time i guess for both of you a very significant period of time maybe that's the the essence of it yeah, I mean, it's very much Nicholas Nixon's Brown Sisters, mm. uh, you know, hom homage to um, as long as my daughter has the patience to carry on doing it. And she's quite enjoying it. And she's like, you know, she likes the results. She likes seeing the changes. She was thrilled that they were in an exhibition and a book, you know, so which is quite lovely because especially now she's 17, self-consciousness could be <laughs> raging. Sure. But she has this weird thing that, you know, she thinks that nobody sees them because they're not shared on social media so she thinks nobody sees them but if i said but they're going to be in a book and an exhibition are you <laughs> sure you don't want to you want to wear that top with the stains on <laughs> right right yeah. no I'm, I'm joking she doesn't have top with stains on but you know this kind of thing um so uh but we very much are wearing what we're wearing we're, we i don't really curate you know i don't style it we just mm. do um turn up as we are i have actually been trying to do one for about four weeks now because spring is the best light for the spot that we do it in um spring and september for some reason the light is similar mm. like early like late spring and early autumn um so yes yeah, so i've been trying to get but between busy schedules and illnesses sure. uh, we just haven't been able to do it but so yeah so the idea being that you know i'm getting old we're both getting older but i'm sort of you know i've reached the, in a way, the top of the hill and i'm now sort of you know going down the other side where she's still coming up the hill you know she's sort of coming into her her prime, her beauty, her, you know, mm. young adulthood. And I'm sort of just getting my toes into later middle age. I wouldn't like to say late middle age, but later <laughs> no, no. middle age. I'm not sure when um, that is anymore, Trish, to be honest. I think you're probably well, all right for a while to come. Yeah, maybe another <laughs> few years, but you know, um, I'm certainly, I can't call myself, um, I'm, I'm quite proud to be an elder at this point. I'm, mm. you know, I've, I'm very pleased to have got to this ripe old age yeah yeah you know not not everybody gets as lucky enough to do that um, that, that is very so true that's very, very true i'm not i'm not worrying about getting old i'm, I'm quite liking it and i like a lot of what it brings actually mm. but anyway that's completely irrelevant <laughs> no not at all or maybe it's I not think it's I very, yeah i think it's very relevant but that's the kind of project that i suppose you know could go on forever do you have a sort of time frame in mind for it then uh i have thought until she was 18 so 11 to 18 is the sort of like yeah you know, the whole of your adolescence yeah adolescence, we'll yeah. see i mean we'll see if it's if she's happy to carry on a bit longer we'll carry on it's more more you know one of the things i always tell students is don't pre-edit and just carry on i think it'll, you know i think it'll just fizzle out to be honest i mm. think it'll you know she'll become busier and busier and you know if she goes to university, she won't be here at all. Right, yeah. It will have a sort of natural time I think it will have a natural time span, yeah. Yeah. So, but this, you being a subject of the work, I mean, is there a sort of performative side to you? Are you, are you a sort of frustrated 
thespian of, of some sort, or <laughs> you never had that ambition particularly? Because no, you, no, you know, it seems to be uh, an opportunity for you to sort of, exp- exp- you know, just to kind of explore a little bit and to role play and all that. But I don't know if it necessarily comes uh, naturally to you. Um, it does. Yes. It no. Yes, and well, it's a very complex uh, question. It doesn't seem simple, but yes and no. Um, so I would never consider myself to be an actor at all. A performer, yeah. I mean, I perform, perf- but not a live performer. I have been asked to do live performances, and it's like almost makes me vomit the notion of it. Um, in fact, it definitely makes me my stomach lurch. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. And maybe I'll. I think with the right director, if I, I would definitely need a director, need somebody to sort of like reflect me in a way. Um, I think I probably would do something live, but that has opportunity hasn't arisen, and I haven't had the urge to find it but in terms of performances and you know a sort of frustrated thespian (laughs) Mm. i think pausing like being able to hold a character for a moment for a photograph is one thing but when i was trying when i've made two films where i sort of expanded well actually the films came before the photographs in this is for the hestercombe residency so the the films this was in um 2017 the the films eliza and six scenes were born um from the sort of working with archives uh of the the women who lived in this sort of stately home which is now a garden and gallery and cafe that you visit Mm -hmm. um but before it was a a sort of family home um and i did have i you know i got an acting coach uh to help me find those characters because keeping hold of a character for an extended period over, you know, a shooting schedule, you know, several weeks of shooting schedule. Um, and that, I mean, yeah, hold, holding onto a character and, and really um, being able to be true to that character. I didn't have the training, so I needed to have some help. But it also, I'm really just aware, even while talking to you, again, this is like self-reflection. It's like the confessional, isn't it? Um <laughs> I've come to sort of acting through performing for a photograph and I've had all these sort of like incredible, especially making those two films, revelations about my process that like, oh my God, this is incredible. But actually this is just what actors do. But it's just Mm. that I've come to it. I've learned that, you know, about the idea of a talisman, the idea of like, you know, for example, for one of the characters, I had blue contacts in and I've got dark brown eyes and she had blonde, you know, big hair and, um, blue eyes and I have brown eyes so I you know to get into the character I had to put on this wig that I had made um and put in these blue contacts and once I had done that and looked in the mirror then I could sort of like I chat I could I could feel that I you know transformed into this person and I but a character that I had I had kind of devised I mean she was you know this is where the auto fiction comes in you know I was using her biography um and uh, sort of things that people had written about her character um, but I was reflecting myself in her if you know what I mean I was seeing mm. how I would have been had I been her mm. how she would have been had I you know so I how, had she lived now so I was very much but yeah so these like as I said these incredible like light bulb revelation moments that I thought oh my god this is amazing look I'm becoming her by doing this and this is like that's what actors do but I yeah. didn't because I didn't come from acting I had no idea that this is what actors do I kind of discovered it within myself. Um, so there was this big like crossover. Then suddenly I thought, yeah, I am, I am actually acting now. 
but more of as an art practice rather than as a does that make sense yeah totally as an art practice rather than as a performance for a live audience yeah yeah of <laughs> you course. know you never know <laughs> <laughs> no, but <laughs> the that's right opportunity a, and the right as i said the right director it might it might happen yeah i think it's interesting to get that insight because we all we all sort of see actors you know doing their thing all the time in movies and stuff and we don't often i don't think very many people appreciate what's kind of going on behind the you know behind that sort of you know what it's sort of like the swan you know with the uh, you know with a very sort of um serene kind of uh uh, appearance but there's a lot of work happening um behind the scenes as it were or under the, the surface legs. yes the yeah. beautiful smooth gliding belies yeah, exactly. the work of the legs beneath yes the the thing that you're talking about a certain slant of light i think is the, is what you called the project this came out of a residency that you had um at a place called hestercombe which yes. is a what kind of an and a big old house. I don't know if you'd call it a stately home necessarily, but it's a it's a historical um, house. A house that actually goes back a very long time. But the characters that you're talking about were sort of Victor. I guess Victorian were they? What what era were they from? Regency. So Regency. Um, yeah, Regency and Victorian. So the Eliza character was based on the last. So the house was founded five or six hundred years ago by the Bamfield War family, and she was the last of that line, so 500 mm. years of, of ancestors. Um, and she uh, didn't marry, and, well, the fact, the fact that she um, inherited it at all um, as a single woman, she was never married, as I said, she never married. Normally it would go to, like, a, you know, a distant male cousin. Mm. So she was very unusual. Um, so she, uh, it was 1790, I think, when she was born and she inherited in i think it was around 1840 right i can't remember the exact dates but it was around 1840 um and then she died in um 1891 okay and then the portman family took it over um and then they were sort of like you know forward thinking uh victorians that put in electricity and plumbing and you know, mm. reconfigured the whole house, you know, a sort of a, a sort of embarrassing updo. <laughs> mm. Right, yeah. Um, but also made a, you know, so her, the, uh, the, the Elizabeth War's uncle was the garden designer and painter, Copleston Bamfield mm. War. Um, her great uncle, actually, not her uncle. But um, so he d- had made this incredible uh, garden over two valleys, at the back of the house, which is just rambling. I mean, I, you know, I took pictures of myself, <laughs> go, you know, going on with the sort of all my kit and everything in a wheelbarrow because the, you know, the distance from from spot to spot where I was photographing or filming was just so big. And mm. I was on my own a lot of the time working there. And then, so that was a sort of wild, uh, overgrown garden. Um, not overgrown necessarily. I mean, it was well looked after, but it was it was a sort of fairly wild garden. And then the sort of the Victorian garden at the front of the house was made by Mrs. Portman, designed by um, the, the planting design was uh, Gertrude Jekyll and the, um, the actual structure was Lutchen. So it was, you know, famous people mm. uh, involved in this long project. Um, and it was very, very prim and confined and precise and ordered and rigid. So I sort of used the gardens to... Um, as metaphors, if you like, for each character. So Mrs. Portman was very Victorian. You know, I mean, she was 
she thought that women shouldn't have the vote. You know, she was right. an, an anti-suffrage, <laughs> that's such a word, anti-suffrage woman. <laughs> um, you know, because she thought women were a bit silly. Um, and, you know, had so luckily for that character, how I could develop her was because they... Um, uh, they were interviews made from with all the surviving maids and ground staff and gardeners and relatives of the gardeners if they were dead who who were reflecting on their lives and um, working at the house so there was these incredibly wonderful anecdotes which are just back crazy of her behavior to the staff um uh, and it's sort of including a, a just a one line thing, a, a, one of the nieces of the her, of her lady's maid who lived with Mrs. Portman for 45 years and is buried in the family plot. One line in this interview said that how her aunt said that she used to tickle Mrs. Portman's feet with a feather to induce sleep in the afternoon. So that obviously went ping, ping, ping. So I, you know, created this whole sort of imaginary relationship between her and her lady's maid and made the film Six Scenes, where I just imagined mm. six scenes in the life of Mrs. Mm. Portman and her maid. Mm. Now, this is this is fascinating stuff because you're, this all plays into, you know, your kind of interest in research and how that is really a kind of integral part of your process in a way, because you're clearly fascinated by these things. But And did all this come as a result of you being there at the place? Like you didn't know about these people before? No, absolutely and not. I mean, 100%. So the first, um, Kate Best, the curator who has worked with me quite extensively since, was working on a project down there. And she, we had met at the V&A when uh, she bought on V&A's behalf or you know, put forward my work. Um, so we knew each other from then. Then we bumped into a, each other, I don't know, 10 years later at a thing in London. We both had children at this point and turned out we only lived down the road from each other. Well, I mean, down the road in country miles, you know, mm -hmm. not far. We were in the same county and stuff. Um, so we, and she'd just done this project at Hestercombe and she invited me to come and look at it. And around the actual uh, cafe were these photographs of Mrs. Portman. Um, and I was just fascinated by her because she always had this particular gaze where she was a gaze away from the camera and down, like to always to the right. So I was just fascinated by this woman who looked like she was mostly like on laudanum, although of course she wasn't, but it was just obviously how she decided she looked good in photographs. And her son was an avid amateur photographer, so she was extensively photographed. Mm. So that was my initial, and they have an archivist and a, you know, a very ordered archive in the house um so i was put in touch with him and then i sort of made some studies and then i actually proposed the project to um tim martin who's the uh, director of the the gallery um and they normally do only like month long two month long residencies and i sort of wangled a year mm -hmm. oh great yeah because <laughs> i but said you, i had so much to you do you needed you know? yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. so i mean it was very very lucky that uh, the the archivist kim was very generous with his time as well and mm. It was, it was actually the, one of the best, I mean, up to then, it was probably the best experience, work experience I'd had in my life where I was just, you know, 20, well, about 40 minutes drive from my house to this incredible place with, you know, I had a, my, my own room in the house where I could work. There was no internet. So I was like, I had to go to the cafe, you know, five minutes walk from the, from the, off, from the studio. So not having a internet was amazing. My phone didn't work in there either. So I could just really immerse. And then I worked with, um, Mark Harriet, who is a, um, a designer and um, stylist. I've worked with him since seven years, actually. And we worked together on sort of creating the characters. Mm. Um, 
from scratch. Uh, you know, we sort of had Miss Miss War or Eliza, as she became known um, in, as my character. Um, you know, she looked a bit steampunk to begin with. And then we sort of, you know, rummaging all the sort of charity shops and vintage emporiums of East London and Taunton <laughs> and Wells and local places like that to me in Somerset, you know, gathering all this sort of stuff. I mean, it's so such a playful experience mm. working like that. And we just sort of, yeah, it's like in the dressing up box. And then we sort of, so the clothes then inform the character and the, you know, the, the wigs and everything. And then, the, the, you know, it's like, it's a sort of a process that is, kind of continues on and you know bit give a bit take you know try this try and then the sort of the character develops from yeah that relationship as well because you really it did seem like you really brought them to life you know and and i guess um you're not necessarily trying to be historic historically there's oh, a certain no. amount of artistic license let's put it that way yeah a hundred percent and also yeah. it's i mean it's very much interweaving biography my my life with with mm, theirs mm. as well i've done you know that's always how i always try and imagine how I would be if I was them or they would be Mm-mm. they were me well, you, trying to integrate the two I mean you you alluded to the to the kind of theme of of the female experience you know being being incredibly important throughout your work and I guess this this is one project where that was the case and I feel like we should talk about it but I don't know what to ask you like I, <laughs> I like I was like well um, here's my here's my uh questions trish oh that's <laughs> good it's and good to have no questions let's I, just roll i i had questions for everything else but i was like we, we really should talk about it but yeah let's let's talk let's try to talk about it i mean what it, obviously i there's no question about why it would be important to you as an artist as a female artist yourself but um what what the you know what's your sort of overall kind of approach to looking at that topic well, I suppose I'm, dr- I'm drawn to stories of women because that's my experience, I suppose. Mm. Um, and I'm very nosy, so I'm, I love a good archive. I love, you know, rummaging around in people's ephemera that they've left behind. Um, yeah. um, I mean, the, the project that I did for Finland, I mean, I know I had the, it was a retrospective, but I did also make new work that was site-specific. And um, Again, you know, the, the Sirlikus, uh in Finland, Sirlikus Museum in Finland um, was started by an industrialist, Josta Sirlikus, who, uh, you know, many, he's big in the history books, you know, he's, much is written about him, but not so much of his wives, of which he had two. I mean, consecutively, mm. he divorced one and then married another, not at the same time. Yeah. Um, so I was interested in their life. I wasn't interested in Josta's life, but more in, in his wives. Um and then drawing parallels with their lives and mine. So I made a film, um, a, a two-channel film for them about, so I was weaving, you know, the, the sort of, they both had quite tragic lives in various ways um, around the sort of the, the maternal desire and wanting children, children dying young, not being able to have children, mm. you know. And then I was reflecting back on my life where I have a son who was born with a lot of, health issues and I spent a long long time in hospital over the years um so uh I sort of tied all that together with this notion of you know life to death from the first breath to the last breath mm. what is life you know and so um so it, it kind of I don't I'm not really it's really difficult to to say like people ask me where'd you get your ideas from or where you know how do you did it and I, I don't really know it just it's a phys- it start- sometimes it starts as a physical ache. I have one of those at the moment, actually, because I haven't actually made a new work in a year. Right. <laughs> so I'm like 
desperate to get going on some. I mean, I have a few things lined up that I have, but they're very, very early days. That's so pretty. That's pretty good. By some people's standards, a year is nothing at all, Trish, in terms of uh, <laughs> you know, gaps between uh, bits of work. Yeah. So, I mean, I've actually, you know, I was looking, I'm making a new website at the moment and I realized that actually I've made as many films as I have projects. Mm. Um, and there's not that many. I mean, they feel, you know, I did the thumbnails fill one page it's like oh there's no more oh okay mm -hmm. i haven't got massive output for you know 20 years but um anyway i'm bouncing around again no we were well we, we i don't know if we i don't know if we really hit it on the head with the um the female experience and and um, where you know the way in which that's been a kind of through line really from the start and it's not and it not just that project that you know not just uh, a certain slant of light but i think um perhaps throughout really even the pictures of you and your sister um yeah you know, yeah but we do play men in some of those exactly um, yeah. and i have in the in the project i did for syracuse um when i did the residency there when i first met the institute and the other people at the institution in um 2015 the the series titled 10 people in a suitcase um mm. where i was reenacting photographs from their archive um I played male characters then, but I think I drew a line under playing male characters right. <laughs> and I realized that actually it's, it's fun to do it. Um, and you know, you take up space in a different way and you know, you stand and it's, it was really fun to do that. Mm. Um, I mean, I did do a pit one picture where I impersonated, uh, Mr. Portman in 2017 in, uh, and I, we did use them for the, um, for the exhibition, but I haven't used them since. Mm. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's a funny one. So why the female experience? Well, I suppose because that is my experience and I'm interested in other women's experiences and I'm interested in the history of women and particularly overlooked women of which there are many, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many, you know, the, the idea of the, you know, behind every great man is a, is a great woman that never got a look in. Mm. Yeah, but and there, you know, there are stories I'm interested in, and in you know, in the world that that you know you occupy in in the art world and in the photography world, you know, it's I guess it's as much the case there as anywhere, if not perhaps more so. So that's Absolutely. also that's also part of that story. Absolutely. Um, actually, talking about you know the the you're talking about Finland because just to kind of make it clear to everyone listening, that's where you had the show, and and it all came about, I guess, as a result of you having a residency there but you had this a big show there and they then the book was also published by a finnish publisher yeah uh, the, the retrospective and it's called auto fictions and i love that word and i was wondering if you knew anything about who coined that term or where the, what the origins of that word is it seems very appropriate to your work yeah it's usually used in terms of uh writing novels in particular mm. the auto it's a, it's a genre of of uh of of fiction mm. auto fiction right and you right. could all, almost argue that most fiction has an autobiographical element mm. to it because you're also perhaps but um i'm thinking of my favorite writer hillary hillary mantel who is so maverick and like writes in so many different styles that actually and some of it is pure biography actually some of her work is pure biography um and then right up to the sort of you know the incredible historical fiction um, that she's written about um, King Henry VIII and mm. all of that era, um, and also the French Revolution actually, which was another amazing book. Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't know the actual origins. I don't know who first mm -hmm. coined the phrase. I could probably Google it now if you're interested. No, so, I mean, you well, I could, I could, I could, um, 
yeah i could do that myself i could have done that myself in fact probably should have done but i was just thinking that it's sort of it, it is a word that seems appropriate but it's also it's also in its own way ambiguous a term so i thought that was kind of quite nice in itself but yeah um serge dubrovsky in the 1970s entered the uh, the term autofiction auto coined by Serge Dubrovsky in the 1970s has entered the theoretical vocabulary of a literary study of literary studies as a way of describing the interplay between autobiography and fiction. Oh, there you go. There you go. That's interesting. So, and that, yeah. that and that is partly, you know, this. Th yeah, you sort of occupy that space, which has become increasingly, um, I think, a popular space to occupy in photography, which perhaps wasn't so much so historically, but that area between fiction and and truth or you know however you want to put it i mean that's also something that's of interest to you i take it absolutely i mean again you know i coin i refer to um hillary mantel i mean she's been a huge inspiration and um you know her her theory of digging up the bodies that you know you you with in the when she talked about digging up the bodies um is that you know history teaches you the facts and the and the whys and the wherefores, but not the feelings. And they're open to the imagination and the interpretation. And, you know, the bones exist, but you have to put flesh on those bones. Mm. You know what I mean? And yeah. that, that's what, that's what in his, you know, historically would come away and disappear into the, into the earth and the bones would be left bringing mm. up the bodies, not. Right. Up yeah. Bodies, um, bring up the bodies. So, um, yeah, she did a, a series of wreath lectures while I was due in 2017, while I was making the, the work at um, Hestercombe. And it, I was already doing my autofictions, but hadn't really realized that's what I was doing. Mm. Um, and it was, though, you know, her listening to those lectures that sort of like made me really sort of consolidate what I was thinking and how I was working. Mm. Um, yeah. What, which um, Hilary Mantel book should I, for someone who hasn't ever read her, what, which one would oh, I start God, with? Oh, God, I don't know. What, what, do you, what kind of style of writing do you well, like? Uh, well, see, that fascinates me that she can actually adopt different styles because most, most writers are, you know, are, are well known for having a particular style and that's what appeals to people about, you know, who like them. Right? You know, it's like Martin Amos or someone like that. You know, they're, they're, unde they're undeniably, um, unmistakably themselves in their writing. I find it fascinating that she can flip from one style to another. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I like uh, oh, well, it's, all it's, kinds I mean, of different the Wolf, things. The Wolf Hall trilogy mm. is what she's, you know, That's famous the, the most famous one. Yeah. So that yeah, would probably be the obvious one. Incredible, but they really need you to be able to focus, follow threads, work out who's speaking. They're quite intense. And you see, I'm not that probably the, the historical element of it. I wouldn't normally go with some for something like that, but that does not necessarily doesn't mean I wouldn't enjoy it if I gave gave it a go. But the, her her um, every day is Mother's Day is one of my favourites, which is um, a, a story about a mother and a daughter living sort of on the edge of society, um, and it's just so bloody creepy. I mean, mm. it is so creepy. And another really creepy one, which has had a big influence, is, is Beyond Black, which is about um, a medium. Mm. and her uh her spirit guide i that was quite influential in the work i made about spiritualism um yeah you did a thing called phenomena of materialization yes uh, yes which, yeah 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 so i can see where that would that would come into play there 
And then a change of climate, which is kind of semi-biographical, although, it, yeah, so that was where she was living in, I think, Saudi Arabia for a period of time because her husband was working there and her experience of that. And kind of she was also um, quite, you know, quite sick with endometriosis, but didn't really realize it was that at the time. So there was lots of illness. It's a very, again, but it's really psychological. It's really, it's quite claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. They could go on and on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's good. To, it's good to ha- you know. It's good to have some tips from a genuine uh, mm-hmm. a fan and uh, you know expert on that person. All right. Well, I'll I'll have to look at that then. Um, uh, yeah, I I could do with some something for everyone really in yeah. her uh, repertoire. That sounds amazing. So, like, did you come from a creative family? What kind of childhood did you have? What were your parents? They they weren't like creative people necessarily no my mother would say sure i can't even draw a cork (laughs) (laughs) no not at all i mean so so much so that i was even you know denied uh a sort of an art school education i had to sort of do that myself 10 years after i left home uh, because it was uh considered a waste of money we had to you know in the the sort of 80s uh university was paid for Mm. um and there wasn't loans and there wasn't student loans and that kind of thing. So my they had, my older brother and sister, well, sister is an engineer and my brother's a doctor. So that was sort of following their footsteps. Right. So the idea of, as my dad said, sitting drawing for four years, I'm not paying for that, <laughs> uh, was like forever seared into my brain. But so you were already, that's what you way. would have done. Oh, yeah. 100%. If you had the chance. So and you I, were already into yeah. it. You were already artistic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so you, you're would, like the middle. Are you bang in the middle of the of the siblings? Five, then you're like yeah, you're, you're the the middle child of five. Yeah. Okay, fine. Um, yeah. So so, what did you do then? You went. You did a degree in something more sensible, and then you did you did the art thing afterwards. No, I uh, left home as soon as I could. I think I was nineteen. Um, mm-hmm. My older brother and sister were still living at home. Um, and then I sort of just had a, had a great time. I worked in the independent newspaper in Dublin as a darkroom technician. And I'd, I'd kind of done this thing where you, <laughs> naivety is wonderful. Um, and also it was way back in the day. Um, I wanted to be a journalist as well. That was the other thing. If I wasn't going to be a, an artist, I was going to be a journalist. So, But I just couldn't get the grades in English to do journalism. And I'm not sure my dad would have thought of that as a, mm. you know, a career worth spending money on either but anyway we didn't come to that so I did write to all the newspapers saying that you know I really wanted to be a writer I'd clean the toilets please give me a job you know just let me work please and the newspaper want to be in the atmosphere in the environment Um, and just circumstances will look that there was an opening as it were in a in the darkroom and the uh, personnel manager knew my mother so knew the name and just invited me in I think I just had a spelling test and a few other little sort of tests. And I was, I started the following week. It was quite incredible. Amazing. Um, in the meantime, I had done um, a secretarial course because that was obviously a, something a, gir- a girl could do. Was that your so introduction to photography though, that darkroom experience? Yes, 100%. Okay. I, hadn't, I hadn't actually picked up a camera before. And I had picked up a camera. I tell a lie. I won my first camera in a writing competition when I was 10. All right. <laughs> so I had a, a you know, a snappy snap camera right but i'd never no i, I this, this was where i fell in love with the alchemy of black and white photography mm. and the, you know the, in the dark room printing yeah, yeah. Pi- seeing pictures appear in a tray 
Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was where I, you know, I became one of those photographers, the sort of the flaneur, mm. flaneurs. Interesting. With the, with the camera around my neck going around. So I've got, I, I lost all that though. I've got a few prints of it, but most of it was left on a train when I arrived <laughs> in London. Oh my so that gosh. That was actually, that was the answer to one of the questions you had given me. What was my biggest failure? Oh, yeah. That was, that was it. The bonus but, questions. Um, well, we're going to, we're going to do those um, for the, sec- yeah. the members. But, and you, you were in Australia for a while. That was, was that an enjoyable experience? Oh, another fantastic residency at Monash University. Uh, that was absolutely brilliant. It mm. was wild, absolutely wild. I had, um, so when I was asked to do it, I was pregnant. Right. <laughs> and when the time came, actually, I think I was asked before I was pregnant. And then when the time came around to do it, I had an 18-month-old. And um, I was kind of like, oh, by the way, I've got an 18-month-old. Can I bring her? And they were like, oh, God, no, you'd be living on the you know, university campus. There's absolutely no way you can bring a child. And I said, well, then I can't come because there's no way I can leave an 18-month-old behind. Yeah. You were a so, solo parent, were you? No, no, I wasn't a solo parent. No, no. Okay. But, um, you know. It was. Uh, it wasn't practical. You couldn't leave a, a six, six or seven weeks. You can't, as a mother. No, of course I was still not. Breastfeeding, I think, at that point. I think mean, I was weaning her off, but it was, you know, I was quite late. Anyway, that's probably far too much information. But um, <laughs> no, it was. It was. Uh, yeah, it, you couldn't leave. I don't think anyone could leave a child for six no. weeks at that stage. So, so or any stage. I don't think I could leave them for six weeks now. No, seventeen and fourteen. It's very know. difficult. A week, maybe two max, but absolutely no more than that. They so, just, they, so what happened? Anyway, then? They let you take so, her. So, because um, yeah, so the flat, the the apartment, which was amazing as well, serviced. So I didn't even have to wash a dish. It was serviced. Um, and somebody came in twice a day to clean up after me, which was just, I mean, embarrassing but incredible because the idea was that you were just focused on work. Um, I just had to sign a waiver that saying that if anything happened, that I was a hundred percent responsible for it and that I couldn't sue the university. Right. <laughs> so she wasn't allowed anywhere except the flat, obviously she wasn't allowed in the library or any of the other, you know, lecture halls or whatever. So I did, I mean, the idea was that I was there teaching for a little bit, but because mm-hmm. it was just coming and then, um, was doing the, the project front. And also I made a film while I was there as well called ideas of refinement principles of taste which I eat a sandwich surrounded by flies. Right. Um, but yeah, so that's that. Uh, so that was. So it was yeah, wild. Because it was coming up, it was, it was coming up to, it was the summer. So it was coming up to their big holiday, which is Christmas, which is the equivalent of their summer, yeah, you know, the summer break is like months long. So there was kind of a holiday atmosphere at the university. Right. Um, so I was, I, I didn't do very much work before I, um, before they broke up, but they're so, oh my God, so incredibly generous and, can do you know the sort of asking people for things and mm. asking people uh you know for equipment and stuff and or things that they didn't have or you know showing me how you know, they were running out to a party but they'd spend another hour showing me how to use this bit of equipment it was just amazing they were just wonderful i know all the families that i met as well were really generous and lovely but sadly i couldn't use any of the pictures because the they were so different the ones i'd already taken the light right. was just yeah it's- searing yeah, I don't so, use fill in flash. I hate so fill in flash. So it was the only one I did have. Oh, I was able to use was one on a very cloudy day, um, and actually, it's my favourite one. It's it's untitled because um, I was one of those days where everything went wrong and I didn't get the, no- the name of the person who took the picture. Um, and it was with a group of schoolies. So they have um, at the beginning of the summer, 
um, the school leavers, known as the schoolies, take over the beaches because they finish, they break up a couple of weeks before all the rest of the schools and they go wild. Yeah, that. So um, I noticed, noted these groups of young people, you know, getting drunk on the beaches and I thought I really wanted to do a picture with one of them. Um, and luckily it was a day that was a little bit cloudy, so the light was was good. So, and you mentioned that you made a film and you've always worked with video. You've worked with video for a long time. I don't know if whether you, you know, that's clearly that's important to you. I don't know if even if you consider yourself a photographer, do you think of yourself more of a, as an artist who just happens to have uh, ended up working with photography? Yeah, well, I think, it, yes, probably now. I mean, I think I probably would have called myself a photographer up until probably, well, I don't know. It kind of, I don't know. Yes. So you've asked me about three different questions. <laughs> so I'll answer. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It's okay. The first film I made was actually 2004. So it was it was in along with um, yeah, quite seven, early. Shown in seven years. Yeah. So it, that and that film was a kind of a reaction against the limits of photography. So I was trying to make this photograph, which was about a dress that my mother wore and I wore. Her, it was actually her wedding dress, and I wore it to my um, my prom, mm. my Deb stance, because it was like a well, it was called the Deb Stance in Ireland. Um, I was a bit of a, a sort of new romantic stroke part-time goth <laughs> mm. in the 80s, and it was perfect, the shape of it and everything, and you know, back-combed hair and red nails and big red ribbons and bright red lips and red ballet pumps. It just, the, the dog's bollocks. Um, so I wanted to make this, this photograph about this dress or a multiple photographs about the dress, but they just were all so terrible and so cloying and silly and they just weren't right so I just thought I'd try a, a film making it as a film um which was done on like an amateur camera it, I mean it's it's so lo-fi it's mm. embarrassing but it you know it's it still stood the test of time and made it into the into the retrospective um and was actually acquired by the museum which mm. was a shock because I really think of it as quite rudimentary mm. um but there we are um, but you saw the potential there, as you say, to sort of move beyond the limitations of photography. What what does the video give you? Do you feel that the photography can't? Oh, it's just yeah, gosh, so much, so much more. I mean, mm. it, I think when I think of ideas, they come fully formed as either films or photographs. I mean, I started off drawing and painting, you know, way back, but I don't. And actually, I have some drawings in this exhibition. Mm. Um, which is the first time I've ever uh, shown any drawings. But um, so I think photography kind of came, you know, it was given to me, if you like, by starting this job that I didn't know think about photography and discovered photography in the darkroom of a, of a newspaper mm. and took up a camera and discovered I liked it and loved the, the, sort of the magic of the, of the images appearing in the tray. And, you know, and then I discovered in, in the same period of time, Diane Arbus, because the, the gallery of photography um, was in Dublin, was across the, the Liffey from the newspaper offices. I could be there in five minutes and I'd spend lunchtimes pouring over the books in there. And that was the first time I came across the notion of photography being something beyond the newspaper or the wedding or, you know, the First Holy Communion. <laughs> yeah, right. Just, you know, seeing all those, all, all those American photographers, um, particularly Diane Arbus, who probably... Yeah, I did. I did a lot of Diane Arbus style portraits after that. But um, so yeah, so photography kind of presented itself as a, as a as an art form, and I I found it um, quite magical to begin with. 
I know that sounds really romantic, but I, I think I was very romantic with it. I mean, I used to, you know, as a 19, 18, 19, 20 year old would go around, you know, wouldn't go leave the house without my camera bag, even if I was going out to the pub, you know, mm. I'd still have, and I was t- taking pictures all the time. Um, as I said, I don't have any of those apart from a couple of prints somewhere, but, you know, they all went, everything went negatives the lot. Anyway, that's for later. Um, so then, um, yeah, so so kind of, the, the as I said, the film side of it or the video side of it uh, has grown alongside, but it's probably, yeah. it's it's always tricky to show film um, in a gallery space unless it's really, it's much easier to hang a picture on a wall. It's like you hang a sure. picture on the wall. Yeah, they, those There's different so mediums involved and a lot of their natural galleries. homes, yeah. Yeah, sorry. are not very keen. No, no, we're talking about, sorry, a lot of galleries are not very keen. Then it's kind of, unless you have um, tech expertise on hand, it's not really, um, right. it can often not be very feasible to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got to, Or show it in such a way that I don't, that it's, it's kind of de- de- degrades or degenerates the, 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 the work to such mm. a level that it's almost not worth doing. Yeah, and you've got the option, I suppose, to then, you know, create another way of disseminating that particular type of work and then you know because it seems like you're fairly clear on what should be a video and what should be a stills project yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean the 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 Hesticum became both mm. um and initially i had thought i would just make one film and it had it actually the film i thought i would make at Hesticum became yipnea the film i made for um uh for for Syracuse because i had thought of bringing the biography of my experience as a the mother of a of a sick child and the idea of, you know, a very sick child who, you know, was at death's door at one point that um, I thought I would bring that experience. I've been thinking about this film in some shape or form for, for 10 years or more. And I thought that I would bring that into the Hesticum work, mm. but it didn't sit there. Um, so that's when I originally proposed the the project. That film was there as that. But then it became these two other films. And that was actually because I met somebody who became my, who assisted me and was, had a film background. And then, so she could bring all this knowledge to right. my filmmaking. And then it kind of went up a level from being just a, a single um, shot, Mm-mm. you know, or a couple of shots from the same point of view spliced together to something much more narrative. Great. Well, b- um, people can can see a lot of them on on your website trishmorrissey.com um and of course they can see the the stills project so people can come and have a little a little exploration of of some of the, the films that you've made um i'm i'm gonna bring it to a close trish because we're gonna have to go and do the bonus questions um for the members if you don't mind but um it's been great to chat with you i really appreciate you doing it so thank you so much and i hope that's so it's been very sort of it's been kind of all over the place which i you know which i quite like and uh, you know i am entirely to blame if i didn't wrangle it uh into some sort of um shape but i know that my listeners are very forgiving of me uh in that sense so you know it's yeah really lovely to, to hear from you thank you so much well thank you it's been really great thank you very much for the invitation